following audio is from a sermon series on the book of Colossians entitled, Jesus Over Everything. For more information about Sacred City Church, please visit scmoline.com. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. Bondservants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily, as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ, for the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. This is the word of the Lord. Well, if you are just joining us for the last, I mean, it's, what are we, June, middle of June, since January, the second week in January, we've been preaching through the book of Colossians, and we're we're kind of working our way through the tail end of this sermon series. And as we've come to this section of the book of Colossians, we're seeing that Colossians, as the Apostle Paul writes this, is telling us that following Jesus is not just a Sunday thing, okay? That, that, that's one of the things that American Christianity has gotten wrong for, for decades, that, that following Jesus isn't just for Sunday mornings or just a small group one night of the week. Following Jesus gets into every aspect uh, of our lives, And as you grow in the gospel, as you grow in your understanding of who Jesus is and what he's done for you, it permeates more and more throughout all of the places of your life. So you see this, how it affects the way that you relate to your church family, how it changes your marriages, how it changes the way you relate to your kids and your parenting. And today we're going to see how the gospel affects our work dynamics. And and this is really important for us to come up against because our our mission at Sacred City Church is to make disciples, plant churches, and renew the city. And part of renewing the city is for us to go into the city and to do the jobs that God has called us to do with excellence as unto the Lord. And before I get to the specifics of what that looks like, what I want to do is just take a moment and step back and identify some of the underlying principle, or I guess maybe the the underlying principle that we've seen here through this whole passage of of Colossians chapter 3, verses 17 through the beginning of chapter 4 and verse 1. What's going on here as we look at husbands and wives and parents and children and now uh, bond servants and masters or bosses and employees, uh, Jesus is rewriting the script on uh, the cultural assumptions that we have about human dynamics, specifically in regards to authority and power. Each one of these these, uh, couplets that we see here in chapter three, that there's a power dynamic. There's somebody who's leading, somebody who's in authority, and somebody who's responding either in submission or in obedience. And Jesus is taking a look at these relationships and, and, and changing the cultural assumptions that we have about them and redefining how we as people who have authority 
and as people who are under authority, relate to these authority dynamics and power dynamics in our life. Now, usually, just as people, we don't like to feel like somebody has their thumb over us. We don't like to, this concept of somebody being in authority or having power over me doesn't necessarily sit well with us, but authority or somebody having power isn't necessarily a bad thing. Because in the Garden of Eden, before sin even entered in the world, God gave dominion, that's authority and power, to Adam and Eve to take care of the earth and see to its fruitfulness and its flourishing. And so we see that power itself, even the relationship that they have with God, is not something that we need to push against. But So power is not inherently bad in itself, but what's happened is that it has been defected by sin. Sin has crept in and has, has perverted power structures that we have in our relational dynamics. It causes, this sin in general causes us to curve in on ourselves and to be self-centered. Uh, Augustine calls this the incurvatus insight, where my sin keeps me so short-sighted that all I can think about is myself. And so if I'm in a power position, then I'm using my power for my own selfish gain. And as people who are in power, what typically happens is this sort of like, you got to keep the momentum rolling and you're trying to grab more power. And the more power that you gain, the more your superiority complex, your ego inflates. And what happens then is you, you start to take those people who are not in power and start to oppress them in order to protect the power that you have. And, and then the dynamic of that, those people who are oppressed, those people who don't have power, that they feel this tension. They feel that they're under the thumb and they resist, they revolt, they, they want to overthrow this power and try to gain their own power. And so th this dynamic here, the people in power feel threatened by those who are not in power because they think they're trying to take away their power. And so there's this back and forth, that those who have and those don't, who don't have. And if in some event where the power does shift, eventually the same cycle is going to happen, okay? Those who aren't in power assume power, and then they're going to take and keep grabbing, grabbing, grabbing until they are oppressors as they have been the oppressed. It's just the cycle happens in reverse. Now, our society does not have a satisfying solution for the problem of power. You, you can actually see this as things are going haywire in our country. You look at Seattle and Chaz, right? I, I don't even know what the abbreviation for, but it's this autonomous zone where people have thrown off any, it's like you're, you're actually leaving the United States when you step into the, I don't know, it's like six square blocks. They've, they've declared themselves autonomous, and in doing so, they've pushed off the previous powers, and they have assumed power for themselves, and the oppression and the same cycle is happening. It's a perfect picture of this. They're, they're snatching power, their greediness, their self-centeredness is working for themselves and not for other people. And, and so this is why we're told to know our history, because this cycle happens throughout the history books. And, and as hard as we try to not repeat this, it's, inevitable, it's inevitably going to happen again in some sort of reversal or maintenance of the power structures unless there is a new relationship with power that can be established. Unless something can happen where power is reframed and repurposed. And this is exactly what the gospel offers us. You see, at its core, Jesus deals with the problem of power at a, at a cosmic level. 
The Apostle Paul, is, he's, he's taking this 30,000-foot view of, of the world that is and the systems and the structures that are going on. He tells us that we were under the thumb of, of, of the powers of sin, Satan, and death, the, these cosmic powers that are making claims over every single person. We see that in Colossians chapter 2. And then Paul talks about the same thing in the book of Ephesians when he says this, the struggle that we feel is not necessarily against flesh and blood, it's against the evil spiritual forces that are being exercised over us. And so we feel this. And what Jesus does, he steps in, he changes things by shaming and triumphing over the pre-existing power structures. The tyranny of sin and death and Satan comes to an end definitively in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And so when Jesus takes his power, we see this in, as he's about to ascend into heaven, he tells the disciples at the Great Commission, all authority in heaven on earth has been given to me, Jesus says, that, that he has all claims of authority. And as he exercises his exclusive dominion over everything, uh, Christians respond by saying, Jesus is Lord. In fact, this is one of the first creeds that Christians had, right? We had the Apostles' Creed. We preached through that a while back, right? The first creed that Christians had was this, this one sentence, Jesus is Lord. And as we acknowledge the reality that Jesus is Lord in the cosmic sense, it has this trickle-down effect into every single relational dynamic that we might have. And, and, and so it helps if we look and see how Jesus actually broke the cycle, how he took power and he redeemed it. He, here's what he did. In having all power, he didn't use it to, to kind of create an army or, or a kingdom for himself and say, look, I've put myself at the top. I want you to bow down as the peasants that you are. No, Jesus comes and he lays his life down. And for the first time in history, Right? Somebody perfectly and selflessly gives their power up to help somebody else. This, this incurvatus insight that we have, Jesus didn't have that. He was focused only on pleasing the Lord and serving us, those people who don't deserve it. And so Jesus' aim was to seek to the flourishing of us, not to oppress us. Jesus, he assumes this lowly servant position, although he has all power in heaven and earth. And he wields this power in a life-giving way in order to restore and to renew all things. And when we acknowledge that Jesus is Lord and that we are under this life-giving power, this changes how we ourselves both use power and respond to those who have authority over us. It changes the way that we view it. We can, we can step outside of the normal power structures and understand it in a more holistic and more God-glorifying way, which is why Colossians 3 primarily deals with relationships, right? Because power dynamics are part of all relationships that we have where there's either mutual respect. We see this in the body of Christ where he tells us to be uh, uh, loving and, and compassionate towards one another. But then he takes it into these places where these power structures are legitimate, husbands and wives, parents and children, now bosses and employees, and so what we see here is that Jesus doesn't overthrow the concept of power and do away with it. Jesus, under his reign, authority still exists, but now the gospel reimagines how we use this power and how we respond to this power. It retools power in a way that, that causes flourishing for others and for God to be glorified. And this section that we are in here in Colossians chapter 3, Paul has been working out these kingdom of God dynamics, how we relate to other people. And so the gospel frees us from these selfish power grabs that we might be inclined towards taking in our flesh. 
And it, and it frees us from needing to resist power and authority and to humbly place ourselves under the authority that God has appointed to be over us for our flourishing. And so we see how this selfless leadership and this honoring humility causes flourishing to happen. It's a beautiful dance, and we see it happen in marriage and parenting, and now it works itself into the way of work with bosses and employees. And that's where we're at with our passage today in Colossians chapter 3. So underneath everything that I've been saying, this power dynamic, this is, this is the undergirding principle of these previous, I don't know what it is, seven or eight verses that we have looked at. And now, here we are, Colossians, if I can find it in my Bible here, wind blew it away, Colossians chapter 3, and we're just taking a look at verses 22 uh, through verse 1 of chapter 4. It says, bond servants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service, as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Now, in your ESV Bible, there, there, there's an important footnote as we go into this, where, where you would see next to bond servants, it says, there's a footnote, and you look down in ESV Bible, it says this, this, the Greek word is doulos, and, and the way that you would literally translate that word is slaves. Okay, so it's this relationship between masters and slaves, but ESV, in using the word bond servants, is intentionally differentiating our concept of slavery from the first century version of slavery, which I'll get into in a minute, and the 17th and 18th century versions of slavery that we have had in the United States. There's a differentiation happening here, because when we hear slavery, we think of the atrocities of the transatlantic slave dynamics that have happened that our country was founded on is absolutely disgusting where Africans were stolen from their homes, sold into forced labor, and treated brutally. And to this day, there's still ramifications being passed down from generation to generation. And, and so it's important to keep in mind that when Paul talks about slavery, he's not talking about the 17th, 18th century versions of slavery. He's talking about something different. And, and, and as he talks about slavery, in, in anywhere in the New Testament, there are, there's never a condoning of slavery. There's, there's never a, this is the way it's meant to be. It's actually stating, it's speaking to the current circumstances. And as we look at these verses, unfortunately, historically speaking, these are verses that have been twisted to endorse slavery, but that is not the heart of scripture. And so we need to, to be aware of that and to push back on those ideologies now, similar to the slavery that we are aware of that we've probably heard about in our history books, uh, first century slavery was dehumanizing, all right? There, there, was, there was a hierarchy of power structure here that the masters owned, right? And, and so uh, people were subjugated in a dehumanizing way. Some people were forced into slavery, right? Just as all of the slavery that was in the United States was forced slavery, um, though in the first century, it wasn't a, a racial thing. Sometimes it was because this was the spoils of war. And so to, in order, it's either kill these people or bring them into our society. They bring them in and force them into labor. But, but these slaves had no legal personhood. They, they had no voice, no rights. They were devalued. The imago Dei created in the image of God was not honored. They were treated as second-class citizens, bought and sold, treated harshly, and ultimately dehumanized but different from the United States, first century slavery wasn't a race-based thing. 
First century slavery existed on all levels of society, both educated and uneducated. There would be Greek slaves who were serving Greek masters. There would be foreign slaves serving Greek or whatever masters, wherever they are. And so there's this existence of slavery on all levels. But here's the thing. Some of it was voluntary. Some, some forms of slavery in the first century was actually like a best case scenario for people. Because in this dynamic, there was the opportunity to have lodging and food, caring for your family, clothes, and in many cases, slaves were even paid. And so here, we see there, there, there's a difference between these two types of slavery, though there are, are equally um, unwanted characteristics about them. But it's a very different thing. And as we look at the book of Colossians, we have to keep in the, mind, in the back of our mind that one-third of the people that the Apostle Paul is speaking to in Colossae were likely to be slaves. Now, here's the thing. As Epaphras, who's the, the guy who has met up with Paul in prison, Paul's writing this letter. As Epaphras planted this church, he's preaching the gospel, not just to those who are affluent and wealthy, the masters, but also to those who are vulnerable and in positions of, of weakness like the slaves or bond servants. And, and what this shows is that the proof is in the pudding. What verse 25 tells us is that there is no partiality in God's eyes. So there's no partiality. Epaphras doesn't go and preach to this group of people and not this group. Everybody has equal access to the, to the good news of the gospel. Now, this, this concept of showing partiality, the Greek word is, is literally translated receiving the faith. So Partiality means by treating people by the way that they appear, whether it's their, their clothing, the economic status they portray, racial, racial identity, any one of these factors. You can look at somebody and identify, okay, I, I'm, I'm cool with this person because they look like me. Right? That, that's what partiality is. God doesn't have that. In fact, Jesus opens up his arms and welcomes all who comes, which is why the church is meant to be a global and diverse family of families. Right? One day in heaven, new heavens, new earth, Every tongue, every nation, every people will be standing there before the throne of Jesus. And so as Paul is preaching, as Epaphras is preaching, he's showing how the gospel informs every walk of life, right? How the gospel transforms the way slaves operate and how masters operate. And you might be wondering, why didn't Paul just say, listen, guys, we have to do away with slavery. That's a good question. But we have to remember that in this time, Paul, or the, the church in Colossae, was about the size of this church right here. In the midst of the almighty Roman Empire, how are 80, 90, 100 people going to overthrow the social dynamics, the lucrative system that have been set up in the economic status, and, and overthrow that? The, the answer is they couldn't, not, not in that current state. But Paul's concern, the Epaphras' concern as they preach the gospel is to teach people how to follow Jesus today and tomorrow. So the reality is slavery would just go, over, go away overnight. And in fact, that's the case in our own society. We celebrated Juneteenth this, this past weekend, right? It, it took weeks and months and years before the, the freedom of people was realized. And so Paul is saying, okay, here's how you're going to follow Jesus tomorrow when you show up. Uh, at work as a bondservant or as a, a master. But as we zoom back here, we see that Paul is planting the seeds both here in Colossians and in the rest of the New Testament that would eventually mature that this, this plant, this, this, this 
no partiality, the equity of people, the imago Dei, would mature and evolve and become uh, the, the, the robust theology that we have today, which is still being developed and eventually give way to the abolition of slavery. And everything good that's going to come out of this cultural moment as people are fighting for social justice is going to stand on the shoulders of biblical Christianity and the, the, the concept of Imago Dei. So it was way too much uh, for, this, for Paul to change society in this one quick moment. And it might feel that way for us now, right? Like, how are we going, how are we, like me individually, going to contribute to the rights or the wrongs being righted in our society? It might feel like it's just too much. Well, the kingdom of God economics breaks in here right now in our home, in our work, and our churches, and the church shows the beautiful picture of what it, like, what it looks like for God to not show partiality, to open up our arms wide to everybody. And so this is the opportunity for the church to step in and to lead the way in this cultural moment. But let's get into the the application of this. What does this mean, right? Because if we could say, look at bond servants and, and draw the parallel to our modern day circumstances, right? That could be um, bond servants, employees, right? Bond servants think employees and masters think bosses or business owners. Here's what it looks like to follow Jesus as bond servants and employees. In verse 22, it says, obey your masters in everything. Okay, so this, this dynamic as, as employees, we acknowledge the authority of our bosses, and we act accordingly. We act upon what they tell us to do and obey these things, not in a sense of blind obedience, right? If they're telling you to do something illegal, you have biblical grounds to listen to God and to ignore what your boss is telling you. Maybe it's time to find a new job, but to obey in whatever lines up with the way that God commands us to live. And this is, we see, this is, goes beyond just going through the motions, right? right? Doing, checking the boxes, yeah, yeah. It doesn't really matter your attitude in doing something. You just do it, check it off. It doesn't say to do that. I think that tends to be our default when we go into work. It's not about doing it the best that we can or putting ourselves into our work. It's just sort of checking the boxes. Well, Paul says to do it with sincerity of heart, not as eye service, not as people pleasers. And so if we're doing our work in a way that is to just to, to appease our boss or, or to make ourselves look good so we might get in their good graces. That is a counterfeit way of doing your work. You are not honoring Jesus. You're not honoring your boss. It's just a front. It's a, it's a, a facade so that you would be thought of more highly than you ought to be. And so Paul says your aim is not to gain your boss's praise or approval, not to avoid his rebuke when you're doing things wrong, not to be people pleasers, not out of eye service, but to do it from the heart. Because if you're doing things as, an eye, uh, as eye service or people pleasing, that, that is not a sufficient motivator, right? The fear of your boss trying to get their thumbs up like attaboy is not a sufficient motivator to do a good job in your work. It leaves us paralyzed because the whole time we're thinking, what is this person going to think of me? It doesn't free me up at all to give myself to the work that's before me. But rather, Paul says in verse 22, to fear the Lord. He, he does this a couple times. He, I got sweat in my eye, guys. I hope you're hanging in there with me. I, I'm, I'm getting close to the end. He places the earthly master. So this, this awareness as the servant, the bond servant, the employee, he places the earthly master as sort of second tier to the authority of God. 
He says your earthly masters are under the lordship of Jesus. So you don't go to work for your boss. In fact, verse 23 tells us that you go to work as if you're serving Jesus, as it's for Jesus. And so when we have this sort of mindset that my work is not about, you know, checking the box, but it's for worship of Jesus, it becomes a wholehearted effort because we have seen that is how Jesus works for and serves us. That Jesus on the cross, he, he, he poured out everything. He did his very best for us. And so in response to that, we work wholeheartedly as unto the Lord. And even more than that, Jesus' work has actually qualified us for this heavenly inheritance. Like Jesus' work, not, not my work. See, no matter how good of a job that I do for my boss or for Jesus, it's never going to be enough to qualify me to get in God's good graces. I have to be relying upon the work of Jesus because he has done it perfectly on my behalf, and now I have access to his inheritance. Now, this would be incredibly liberating language for a slave in the first century because slaves couldn't inherit anything. They typically had no property except for their close personal values, and there was no passing on of personal possessions or inheritance. But here in the gospel, slaves are reminded that they are given this inheritance in Christ, that they are fellow heirs. And as they work unto the Lord, their inheritance, it's getting heaped up more and more, this, this, this blessing that is coming their way from Christ. And so what we see here for, for employees or bond servants, your reward in doing things unto the Lord in the name of Jesus is bigger than any paycheck or bonus that your boss can cut you which motivates us to work joyfully and sincerely from the heart. Now, masters, you are charged here in verse 1 of chapter 4 to treat your underlings fairly and justly. Now, this, this verse right here. Now, the, the, the tragedy in American slavery was they pounded these verses about what slaves ought to do, and they completely ignored the way that masters were to honor and to instill the dignity, value, and worth of being in the Imago Dei. And so here it says, treat your underlings, your employees, your bond servants fairly and justly. You can still ask them to do their jobs, but you do it in a way that, that gives them, that humanizes them, that gives them dignity and honors the Imago Dei that is in each person. And as verse 1 goes on, not only does it say treat them fairly and justly, here's the reminder that you are under a heavenly master, that Jesus is over you and you have to answer to him. So if you're treating your employees poorly, there is condemnation that will come your way. In fact, there's a link verse here, I'll get to it in a minute, but, but, but we can look at this and say, right, this is, this is obvious to us. Right? This is how employers should treat their employees fairly and justly. And the only reason that we as a society think that this is the right way to do things is because of Christianity. This is a biblical concept. No other Christian or no other world religion has no other no other world religion has this framework to instill value and dignity and worth in all people. And so the fact that social justice in our society exists is a biblical concept. This isn't a liberal idea. This isn't a political thing that people mustered up. This is a biblical concept. 
In fact, the places where Christianity is unknown in the world are the places where slavery still exists to this very day. So realize it or not, the lordship of Jesus, whether, whether you acknowledge Jesus as Lord or not, the lordship of Jesus has dr- drastically affected us. And as it increases, our awareness of it increases, Jesus is transforming more and more to change these power structures so that there would be Christian officials in office, that there would be Christian representatives being ambassadors, not just for the people, but for Christ and wherever they go. That's a different topic. I got to bring it in here. I skipped the hinge verse that, that goes backwards to bond servants in verse 25 and also forward to masters. And, and here's what it says. I've already referenced this, but for the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done. And there is no partiality here. This is important because God is saying he is keeping a close watch on these relationships. God knows that there's a tendency for abuse to happen and he is keeping the score. And so this would be this would be settling for an employee, right, that, that, to know that God is keeping track of the wrongs and, and those wrongs will be paid back and that there's no curve, right? No partiality. There's no curve. There's no way to get around it. It would be encouraging for the servants who were under poor treatment to know that God is going to settle the score one day. But it's also challenging for both servants and bondmasters to do things the right way, to use their power to respond to power as God ordains. And as you sit back and look at it, you think about it, if you're a boss, your employee, no matter how you slice it, we have all failed at this standard. Whether you're, you're a boss and, and you tend to treat your employees unfairly or unjustly, right? asking too much from them that dehumanizes them, or as, as people who are going to work to just punch the clock and to, to be people pleasers and eye service, right? We've all failed at this wrongdoing. And this tells us that we're going to be paid back for that. Unless, unless we cling to Jesus. Because the gospel tells us that Jesus, who was the right doer, he did everything right, both as a master and a servant. He is going to go to the cross, or he did go to the cross, and he paid for all of my wrongs. So that when I put my faith in him, I cast those sins upon him and they are taken care of and eliminated. That's the only way that you can avoid getting the payback for the wrongdoing that you have done. For all the people pleasing, all the eye surface, all the harsh treatment. And so that in the gospel, the ungodly, the undeserving, those who have an unhealthy relationship with power can be justified and receive mercy and by the power of Jesus Christ change the way that we exercise our authority and respond to authority. And this is the way, one of the ways, that God wants to change our cities. Let's, let's give ourselves to that work. Would Jesus be glorified? Father, we thank you that your word meets us right where we're at in this cultural moment and speaks to directly to how we go to work tomorrow, how we treat those who work for us. Help us, God, to wherever we go, bring the light of Christ with us to show, to demonstrate his loving kindness towards us and what we have received in Christ. And I thank you that every sin has been paid for on our behalf. We thank you in Jesus' name, amen. Amen.